Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I'm joined by writer and esoteric researcher Stephanie Quick. Stephanie is the creator of the Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box blog, where she discusses her own experiences and investigations into a wide range of 14 subjects. Her approach to engaging with the weird is a practiced one, and as such she has a very thoughtful and insightful way of trying to understand subjects that can often be quite polarising. As you can imagine, when talking to someone with such an interesting life, this was a wide-ranging interview, with not that much input from me, as it didn't really need it. There were a few small sound issues during the interview, an occasional echo on Stephanie's audio here and there after I talked, but it's not very noticeable, and certainly doesn't detract from our conversation, which now follows. Enjoy! Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm good, thank you. So, to begin with, just tell us a little bit about how your interest in the paranormal started. Hmm. I was just pretty much always interested. I I don't know how to explain it, but um, I really got kind of off the dime about it. Uh, with, I think with a lot of people here in the United States, we have the Scholastic uh, Books Program, and they have like catalogs and stuff, and, and uh, school children can order books to read and buy. So there was one called Strangely Enough, and I had the edition with a big weird eyeball kind of on a Martian landscape on the cover. And it's actually kind of like um, uh, Fortiana for little kids. It, it, I forget the, the author's name, but uh, it's you can still get it. And uh, he just talks about a lot of different strange incidents, um, UFOs, uh, strange ghost uh, sightings. Um, there's a one from... Uh, an incident in New England back in the 1700s or something where there was a snow and everyone woke up and there was like this line of, it looked like goat hoof prints, bipedal, that went like just straight across the landscape, you know, over roofs, uh, on top of them, uh, jumped over uh, fences and the whole thing. And, the, you know, these kind of strange, just like the, the devil in New England, right? Um, so a lot of these strange incidents together. So it was it was great as introduction to the weird. And also I liked it because it was, you know, 40 in, in that example. I mean, everyone's talking about now, or not everyone, a lot of people in the kind of para-weird community are really getting a lot more on bar- board with, okay, you have things that look like structured craft uh, with uh, entities in them. You have uh, Bigfoot, uh, you have uh, classic ghost hauntings and stuff, but uh, poltergeist incidents, but there's a lot of overlap between all of these incidents. And um, people getting more on board with that. But that was what was great about this book is that it kind of included a lot of all these things together. So I was never really on board with thinking, oh, well, there's just, um, you know, a big separation between the the various forms of the uh, para-weird or paranormal. And for whatever reason... I don't know. I think it's because they had some accounts with people who had, um, and these are just like small chapters, maybe like two or three pages long in a small book. And I remember that they had ones of people who saw UFOs. And then there were um, 
one's of uh, one of a someone who'd seen like a, a plane plane that was out of time like it shouldn't have been around anymore that type of thing and for whatever reason i thought i don't know why it is that these ufos or flying saucers are having such a big effect on people's consciousness because you could even tell that people were really shook by it um even in these small accounts when i was young i was probably like about seven or eight and i thought why isn't it just why aren't they reacting to it just like oh maybe that's just some uh fancy thing that the government has put out why i mean it's like why is it so different to see that in the sky versus a plane a type of plane that you never saw before right the whole sense of the uncanny and the effect on the witness's consciousness that whole aspect really intrigued me from the beginning so i just kind of went along from there <laughs> right okay and and where was it you were growing up was was it was that a place that had folklore as well were you able to kind of get out and investigate mis- mysteries near where you lived or things like that not Particularly, I was born in Fresno, which, of course, in the, I don't know, a number of years ago, they had those Fresno Nightcrawler videos that came out, which are just really weird. Finally, Fresno was on the, the paranormal uh, map, as it were. Um, and then I moved up to the East Bay in San Francisco in Castro Valley and grew up most of the, my life there. There wasn't, when I was younger, I didn't run across a lot of uh, hot spots. I never became like a classical ghost hunter or researcher, um, it wasn't quite such a, a thing back then. Um, but one thing that that really did affect me, and uh, when we were growing up, uh, my uh, family is from Fresno, and my, uh, both sides of my uh, mom and dad's family had grown up in the foothills or come from the foothills south of Yosemite, and. Um, my mom's people go back to the Chicansey tribe there. So every uh, summer we spent at least a week at this uh, Chiquita Creek uh, campground there where my mom had uh, camp when she was a child. And, um, you know, we were just always all over the Sierras. We were spent a lot of time uh, camping uh, on the beach um, and stuff. But we spent a lot of time in the Sierra Nevadas growing up, especially. There's a lot of gold rush towns there. Um, there's a pretty stark history of uh, genocide and slavery of the indigenous peoples. Um, the mining that they did for gold just destroyed huge amounts of the environment in the Nevadas. And they are a very young, very, I don't even know how to say it, very imposing, very beautiful um, range of mountains. And so for me to be, you know, kind of in San Francisco uh, Bay, which is very mild, temperate, uh, welcoming, easy as far as the climate goes, and then to be at, you know, 8,000 feet up in the Sierra Nevadas and just the change in the ecology, but I really felt the, just the spirit that like the nature spirit of the mountains when I was there as a child. And I, I wouldn't necessarily even realize it or name it as such when I was growing up, but it, the older I got, the more facility I had with altered states of consciousness and um, experiencing various discarnate entities. Uh, I really recognize that. And it's still, it's, I always loved it up there. It was always very difficult because it's just such a huge presence. And it, it just, um, does, I don't know, it does not feel happy. It feels like there's a lot that, that, it, that has not been resolved there. Um, so that was more, I don't know if that answers your question. 
but that was something that was a lot more that I was noticing growing up is just um, being in these different environments and different ecologies and different history and how that had just like a, a huge kind of a consciousness uh, felt sense difference to what it's like to be in these places. Hmm. Yeah, of course. No, that's a that's a really interesting answer. So, as your interest in this kind of stuff developed, was there a key moment in that where you felt like you 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 sort of had an idea to yourself about what might be going on? I, I know that's a huge a huge question, but was was there something that happened where you you felt like you were headed in the right direction in terms of the interests that you had and engaging with this thing um, a bit more directly I I don't know I always I have uh, memories back to very shortly in my first year of being outside of the womb Hmm. I just I was just always I always wanted to find out what the truth was I just always had this drive towards you know enlightenment or whatever you want to call it um, knowledge of gnosis of the divine gnosis of that all that is just from the the time I was really born you know very small and going on and I just always had this a very strong drive throughout my life um probably I don't know the big I was listening to um a fun conversation and I can't remember the the name of the uh, podcast, but it was with uh, Georgina Rose, who's a, th- a young Thelemite. And uh, the name of the episode is The Wacky Thelemite. So I think if you look it up that way, you should be able to find it. Kind of a young podcast. She's really fun, breezy, a conversationalist. It was a, a fun uh, thing to listen to. But she was talking about being um, like uh, in high school and, and becoming a, a ritualist and everything. And I realized that I never, I've never been a big ritualist. I never really got into like specific ritual practices that I learned from other people or books until I was in my mid thirties. But when I was 15, I became very ill. Um, and I was missed most of my junior year of high school. Um, I like in the first month, I just like, I started coughing. I was sleeping all the time. I lost 20 pounds. Um, you know, we had uh, Kaiser insurance here and they did some tests, but then they're like, well, you know, we need to, I wait a month to do this other test, um, but we think she's dying. And, you know, my dad just like, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. He ripped them a new <laughs> asshole thing. Um, and I had to go see a lot of other doctors. And, you know, finally they're like, got one doctor who's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. We're just going to try and save her and I'm going to stick with you. So I was really ill, and then I had to take a lot of steroids, which were uh, very difficult uh, emotionally, physically. I developed arthritis. I couldn't walk for months. I mean, it was just a big, horrible thing. And at the end, they didn't even know like what caused it. So it's, kind of, it's like this weird thing. It's like, well, hopefully this won't happen again <laughs> after you've been through all this BS and missed out on a lot of, of life. But, um, so I spent most of that time home alone because, you know, mom and dad were working, my brother and sister were going to school, um, you know, with myself and the dog. And, you know, the first couple of months, it was just brutal because you're at this point in life where, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get my driver's license. I'm going to be able to, you know, get a job, you know, all these things where you could start to become more independent and you become completely 
dependent again. Um, and I remember I became very uh, suicidal and I would go around during the day when everyone was gone and look and see what there was in the house that I could use to kill myself. But then I would think about my family and I realized that, you know, I couldn't do that to them, that I had to, you know, honor my relationship with them and my love for them and, you know, live by my principles that way. And so I decided to do that. And um, in a way, it's kind of like a bodhisattva vow. And that really, uh, to me, that was like the big, in my like spiritual life, that was the big uh, turning point. I mean, I'd always been very concerned, as, even as a little kid with ethics, treating other people well, and, you know, living by your principles, even when it's difficult. But uh, making that decision, because I really just, I mean, I really honestly just wanted to die. And I was just, I mean, I couldn't get dressed. I could barely get out of bed. It was horrible. Um, but I made that decision. And and then, uh, I don't know, I think that opened a lot up for me in terms of, this is going to sound super corny, but help from the other side. <laughs> hmm. But uh, it was more about, let me see if I can get the dog to go out of the room. Speaking of uh, other sentient beings, come on. You can do it. There you go. <laughs> Just a second. <laughs> oh, gosh. I have a, a, where I'm set up, it's like I can, I'm using a wired a headphone, and so I can barely reach the door, so it's always kind of dicey. <laughs> but anyway, for me, you know, that was like, that was the big move, is to just, it's like, you know, okay, it's one thing to say you're going to live by your principles and you're going to try and consider other people, but what's it like when you're faced with the really uh, excruciating circumstances that are very unpleasant and uh, very much up in the air? I know another thing that's become uh, more popular, and it should be uh, these days, is the whole idea of liminality, but that was a very liminal period because I was in puberty, <laughs> right? I don't. I think I'd only have my period like a year. Hmm. And then uh, all of a sudden, you're just kind of in between life and death. Nothing's really happening. <laughs> you know, it's like super liminal. You don't have any routine. So, but luckily, you know, they just threw a bunch of steroids at me and I was able to get better and, and actually graduate from high school, so, which was kind of uncertain for a while. Yeah, I can only imagine what that must have been like. So, so after that happened, um... What sort of things were you doing to sort of learn more about the, the para weird? Were you, were you engaging in magical practices or is it more sort of finding the appropriate reading materials or boots on the ground going to, going to certain places that, that interested you? Or At that, After that, I had a few years where it was, um, you know, I was just trying to get back into more normal life yeah of course so i was trying to um you know build up my strength physically i started walking a lot more um after that um i graduated from high school and then went to um to college and i was never able to graduate from college because i have ongoing health concerns um and part of which is i tend to catch everything and uh, you know it aggravates other things but um i was able to go to uh, uc santa cruz and then also uc berkeley and i ended up um 
And I find this, uh, the more I'm around, the more I see a lot of para-weird people <laughs> are the same. But I studied anthropology, especially archaeology, and um, Olaf Phillips, uh, Jack Hunter, uh, Eric Wargo, you know, you see... Uh, Oh, uh, Aaron Daba. There's a lot of these uh, in people with an interest in the para weird that are trained as anthropologists to whatever extent. Now, I never graduated, but I did complete uh, all the coursework. Um, and uh, that really informed my viewpoint. It was not explicitly into the para weird, but it really informed my viewpoint of how to look at these events because um, it's multidisciplinary, right? You have uh, you're looking at the body, uh, physically, the genetics, the bones, um, the you know uh, prehistoric remains of our ancestors. Uh, you're looking at culture, everything that is just like a, you know a huge thing all in itself. Linguistics, and then um, archaeology. What are the uh, physical traces that human activity leaves in the world? Um, so I never had the feeling that you get with people now. It's like, well, if we're going to find out about UFOs, you need to just throw out everything that the witness saw, all those uh, things that are happening in culture, and just look at the bare, hard physical facts. <laughs> well, that's only one aspect of it, right? I mean, it's an important aspect. Um, but to have a complete picture, you need to look at things from multiple angles. I also learned a lot about ecology. Um which uh, it's interesting, Jack Hunter has been uh, doing more about uh, ecology and the overlap with the uh, paranormal, which I think is uh, very perceptive. And I'm really happy to see that um, happening because I think that there is a lot to be said about um, ecology as a metaphor for the way that we kind of participate in these various levels of um, manifestation or connection with other beings. I was thinking like... Uh, Flying saucers, for example, they may exist as these physical forms. They exist as uh, traces on radar. They exist as images on film and digitally. But they exist. The place where they are most prominent is in the uh, shared collective mind space of humanity, right? Yeah. That's where you're going to find flying saucers, the, the most biggest, right? And it's kind of like if you, um, to me, when I look at it, like ecologically, it's kind of a, it can provide a little bit of a, a, a metaphor for how these things work, right? I was thinking, if you're living in a house and you have a tree outside, right, there's these various ways that you can, uh, or uh, levels of interaction that you can have with the tree. You know, you can go and uh, sit in the shade of the tree. You can um, eat the fruit that come off of the tree, right? And have it interact with you that way, which is a very um, uh, material interaction. Um, you can have allergies to the pollen that this tree is producing, which is also material, but it's at a different scale, kind of at a micro scale, microchemical, biochemical scale. And then you can have a more rarefied interaction. Uh, the two of you uh, feeding each other, right? One oxygen, one CO2. Mm. this kind of breathing in and out so you have these different relationships with the same entity and they're happening on different levels of manifestation so i think you can kind of use that as a metaphor sometimes to look at some of these uh interactions that we have for example with uh bigfoot <laughs> a lot of it is happening kind of more in the more rarefied uh 
uh, less substantial realms, right? Yeah. But then it can also uh, now and then break out in very physical manifestations, and you're going to have footprints or, or weird things happening. And you have these very strong physiological reactions that people have to these high strange events, as well as, you know, getting kicked into very altered states of consciousness. But so during that time period of my life in college, I was very focused on my studies there, but I think it really informed how I tend to look at para-weird phenomena. And then of course you have a lot of great mythology and there was a lot of, um, awareness at that time to uh, various magical practices and shamanic practices and uh, various um, different cultures throughout space and time. So I was very interested in that as well. And I ended up um, also at that time, it was a little, actually it was a little bit after that. My sister and I were at UC Berkeley. I can't remember if it was before or after my near death experience, but um, she was, interested in film studies and uh, ended up reading The Night Battles by Carlo Ginsburg, which, um, and this was probably like the early mid 1980s, probably mid 1980s. And um, I love his, Carlo Ginsburg's work, uh, Night Battles uh, and Ecstasies as well. But it was very fascinating to me to see I liked that he had the, um, I want to say, he has that uh, historical theory, and this is something that's frustrated me because I have no idea where it comes from because he has all these <laughs> all these footnotes in the back of ecstasies. And they're in a foreign language, and it's, I don't even know what language it's in, so I have like no hope in hell of being able to find out what he's pulling from. But he has this uh, historical theory where you can look at a text that is very biased, and uh, use certain techniques to kind of pull out, um, pull out the bias, and or kind of um, pull aside the bias a little bit and try and get out what the uh, is going on in there. Um, he specifically is talking to a bunch, looking at uh, narrative texts. You have um, documents from the Inquisition back in the bad old days when they were uh, talking to witches and all different types of people. Um, in the night battles, he's talking to a bunch of uh, people in the Frioli part of Italy who claimed that on the ember days, right, they would uh, fall asleep go and travel in their soul to these uh, battles where they would um, fight, uh, I think it's the Hounds of Hell, they, um, or other people who are aligned with the devil. Uh, they would fight against them for the fate of the crops for the next year, right? Hmm. using fennel stalks. It's a fantastic book. So uh, he is think he's trying to get through the bias of the inquisitors who are looking at this all through like a Catholic uh, heretical uh, demonological viewpoint to what was the uh, folk um, experience and belief that was generating these accounts. And I thought this is fascinating because of course, when you look at accounts of people who have, uh, in many cases, the classic is encountered aliens that um, or the other, along with the flying saucers, there seems to be quite a bit of deception going on in terms of what the uh, saucer occupants are showing to and uh, saying to 
um, these abductees or witnesses. So I thought, well, it'd be interesting to use a kind of a similar uh, lens to see if we could look at a lot of these narratives or uh, that come out of these alien abduction situations and see if we can use that to kind of pull aside a little bit of the bias, perhaps, of the uh, saucer occupants or, uh, you know, what their kind of almost absurd uh, language usage and stuff. I don't know if it would work or not, but it got me thinking that, you know, you don't just need to take everything on face value, but there are these academic models and, and tools for looking at these things a little bit more um, kind of from the side and seeing if that would shed any new light on anything. And then, of course, the whole um, uh, element of um, he it tips his hat in a couple places, uh, Ginsburg does, to uh, incidents where it looks like people had um, during these astral battles that they had uh, obtained knowledge of events that were happening far away that were later confirmed in some of these documents. So it's a, another fascinating thing that there would be this kind of confirmation of some like a telepathy possibly or whatever uh, with the uh, middle, age, uh, middle ages remote viewing possibly <laughs> in these documents. <laughs> but then also it really tipped me to how much of these experiences are happening in the kind of shared imaginal space, um, which is something that I think because it's kind of hard. we're not enculturated to think that way um a lot of the uh, uh traditions where they'll train they'll talk about this and they will train you up on these type of techniques and working in that shared imaginal space are seen as uh, very esoteric they guard against those practices teaching them to people uh, there's airs of, of mystery to it um when people are more kind of standard parapsychologically oriented um th this type of thing is seen as pretty taboo especially if it has any uh charged emotional content or um ritual uh involved in it you know, it's, it's more acceptable if you call it like remote viewing and, and use numbers, right, to get yeah. at it. As a thing, I'm going to um, perform a ritual to uh, uh, Aries or something and try and connect with my friend across, you know, the, the continent. You know, it's like that scene is like, eh, that's kind of magic. It's like kind of weird, you know, doesn't have the proper controls in place, blah, 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 whatever. Um, so, you know, but I thought that that kind of really, that time period, I was really got the whole idea of uh, multidisciplinary uh, looking at things that came out a nice, <laughs> an incoherent, a multidisciplinary approach to evaluating parapsychological <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> but also the role of ecology, the idea that there's these academic models for in, interrogating these narratives, possibly, um, and the whole uh, prominence of what's happening in the mind, but not just the individual mind, that there is like a shared mind space where a lot of this is happening and it can have real world effects. So, And then when I was 21, I had a near-death experience. and. Um, when uh, that happened, I was, it's funny because I was listening to something today. I'm not sure even what got me on it, but the only thing that I've ever come across that reminds me of that experience, uh, because I um, I was very ill, again, 
I was having a medical procedure and I ended up overdosing on lidocaine and being in convulsions for 20 minutes. So I went out and I awoke in this kind of like the classic uh, void of Buddhism, very loud, very um, full of everything, but also just this infinite space. And it was incredibly frightening because you're not in there like in a body or anything. It's like you're suddenly, you know, popped out of everything. You're just like pure consciousness. It's incredibly disoriented. I was terrified. <laughs> and today I ran across, um, there was that tornado several years ago in Joplin, Missouri, and there was a bunch of people that got trapped. They were in a gas station and they ended up riding it out in a beer cooler and they recorded it. <laughs> and that's the only thing I've ever run across that recording that reminds me what it was like falling into the void. But um, I noticed they made themselves very obvious, these uh, discarnate beings. Um, they made themselves very obvious and it was to me when I was in this void and they were kind of like, do you, if you want, we are here. But I had to say yes. So I said yes and they just gave me a lot of teachings and practices. Um, and that really informed me, that's informed me a lot, that they asked for permission, hmm. right? They're like, okay, we are here if you want, if you want. But I, I thought that was uh, very principled. And, um, you know, it, there's a, especially when you, you know, you have a new insight or something, there's always this kind of feeling of rush of wanting to correct people or, to show them, you know, the way, that type of thing. But that's not necessarily the the best way to help people, and it's not necessarily ethical, and that just you have to have self-restraint. Um, and I think it goes on the other end, too, that you can't just expect, uh, you know, to find some guru or teacher who's just going to, like, save you from everything, uh, even without you having to do anything. Um, so I ended up, um, following these practices that they gave me, which were kind of like mindfulness meditation, um, walking to develop uh, like the root chakra and strengthen my relationship with my body. Um, and then they had given me uh, kind of verbally and then also um, experientially um, various ideas about the fact that we're all very much interconnected and kind of all part participating in this one big whole and so I was thinking how would I find out whether or not that's actually you you know like true <laughs> instead of just kind of like going in I was kind of like well they're saying this they give me the experience of it which is like a weird thing to all of a sudden know something because I had been like a great student before I knew about, you know, I was a musician. I knew about art. I knew about looking things up in the library, but to just all of a sudden know something without any of that happening is like a weird feeling. <laughs> I'm used to it now because it's happened a lot more. But um, anyway, so I was like, how can I try and get at this whole, I mean, it's like a classic thing of, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, that type of thing. Right. But um, so I started to uh, to try and interrogate that whole idea that are we really actually this interconnected? And so 
what I ended up doing was I just, because when I was younger, I was like very combative and I was constantly uh, getting beat up at school and getting in arguments with people when you just like went down to like turn in a library book, something like that. So I did not enjoy being a kid. So I was like thinking, well, maybe if I just, if that's the case, if you kind of like try and, and give this uh, feeling of like acceptance and loving openness towards people, then you should get it back, right? If we're really in interconnected this way, right? That should work. So I started trying off with like people that, you know, just like a checker that you're only going to see once a month for two and a half minutes, maybe, right? And just try mm -hmm. and be pleasant and stuff. And I found that it worked and that, um, you know, like nothing is ever a hundred percent, but, uh, you know, I tended to, you know, I was getting it back. I was becoming less combative. Um, you know, you could have these nice moments with people that could cheer you up or, you know, you could cheer them up because, you know, a lot of people are having like a creepy day or terrible things are happening. And even just like a little break from that could be nice. So, um, you know, that was more kind of like what my practice was like at that point. And it, I mean, it sounds uh, unbelievable <laughs> to kind of when I think, look back on it, I'm thinking why I was doing all this stuff. And I was like, good, I just learned it from these entities, you know, in my near death experience. And especially for the, the first few years, this was before NDEs were a thing. You know, it was a few years before I put together that this was uh, related to what they were talking about as near-death experiences in, at that time, uh, let's say, afternoon talk shows on the TV in the United <laughs> States, you know, like Oprah or whatever, Phil Donahue. And even then, you know, they were talking about, oh, there's a beautiful figure that reminded me of Jesus, and my grandma was there, and there's this big, beautiful light, and they said, you have to go back. And I'm like, that's nothing like what happened to me, although I was very near-death. Um, you know, mine was a lot more uh, challenging and, and just aesthetically uh, alarming. Um, so I pretty much kept my mouth shut a lot, which is, when I think about it, it just sounds like the worst possible situation in a lot of ways. But for me, I think there's a lot to be said for being thrown on your own resources and um, not relying on other people and trying to... to get through it by your own wits, that kind of trial by fire like that. But I did have, um, the thing that really helped me was that I always, and, and to this day is the case, I always felt a very strong connection with the beings that had helped me. And, um, so I always had that resource, which is, you know, beyond anything you could ask for. I mean, it's the most helpful thing, but, um, you know, in like 1980s, uh, greater San Francisco Bay Area, even, it's not something you wanted to talk about because they were still throwing people in the bin for stuff like that back then. Right, yeah. I mean, do you think that because you were interested in that kind of subject anyway, did, did that help you when you had that experience? And, and after it happened, I mean, did you question what these beings were? And, and have you kind of come to conclusions about that since it happened yeah i don't know i think a, i think that the emphasis on consciousness helped me and i think that the i that um you know i'd grown up like in the 60s and 70s kind of berkeley adjacent so there's a lot of stuff about meditation i mean we had yoga in our high school 
um, which is good. So I think that stuff kind of helped me, except for the problem with these type of things happening outside of a tradition is that um, you don't have the, the people around you to kind of point you towards to uh, words for your experience, right? Hmm. So I, like, I didn't know it was an NDE. I did not know that it was the void. I, I didn't know that I was getting taught mindfulness meditation. I didn't know. I mean, I'd heard about chakras, for example, since I was like knee high to a grasshopper, but I couldn't put it together with the information about subtle anatomy that they were giving to me because it is on two completely separate channels. And one is just a word and the other is incredibly experiential. Now, if you are in a tradition, of course, then you can end up, um, uh, you know, having, uh, let's say, kundalini yoga exercises where they're, or, you know, guided meditation exercises where they're kind of talking you through visualizing these uh, structures and activating them and, and telling you what the word is at that time. But for me, it was just kind of like, I don't, just kind of out there. So um, now I forgot what your question was. <laughs> that's okay it was more just um with you having an interest in this subject do you feel like that helped you deal with having that kind of experience and and meeting those sorts of entities and then afterwards did you come to any sort of conclusions about what they are what they who they were yeah i think so i yeah i think that it it helped i think that um but at the same time is you know, those, these type of real uh, hard-ass uh, mystical awakenings like that, I don't, I think the main thing that can prepare you for that is to have a creative and curious and uh, mind with uh, training in thinking logically, writing clearly, that type of stuff. Um, any artistic uh, creativity training is going to help you. And then the main thing that will help you is if you, this is my own belief is if you are are truly compassionate and try and enact that in your daily life every day all through the day um you know you don't have to be perfect but you have to be willing to humble yourself and to really try and enact that compassion that in my viewpoint is going to attract a huge amount of help and support you from um, these discarded entities and uh so that will be what what will help you but it's going to be crazy no matter what that's just my <laughs> my feeling <laughs> i um let's see so i had my near-death experience i was um 21 and as it turns out i hadn't thought it was this long but uh, recently i did um some research about all this and it was, I think, about seven years. It still doesn't seem like it was that long, but about seven years where I was just kind of like, okay, after about four or five years, I think I kind of knew it was an NDE, but I was just like, there's nothing, nothing at all comes close to anything like addressing anything about what happened to me. It's just like a one-off, I don't know. So it was going to be my birthday. So my boyfriend at the time was a painter. Um, said there was a, a show on Tibetan uh, Buddhist art that was at the uh, De Young Museum in San Francisco, this really big exhibition. And um, he said, 
I'll take you there for your birthday. So we went, and um, when I was there, I saw this one Tonka. It was a black Tonka, very old and kind of um, misty looking, of Paul and Lamu, who is a protector uh, deity. She's a goddess, and she's like supposed to be, I think, the special protector of the Dalai Lama. But she's very ferocious. She is a real hard ass. She is riding on an ass that has uh, like eyes all over it, including on its uh, flanks. And instead of a saddle, she has the flayed skin of her son who would not go with the Dharma. So she's like dealt with him. <laughs> wow. But I looked at it and I was like, this doesn't look anything like what I saw, but it's about the same thing. And it was the, I still can't believe it. It's like, I, it had been all those years and I'd never seen anything that had any relationship. And I was like, this is about that. Even though it doesn't look anything like what I saw, which wasn't that exciting, but there was this real recognition. And it was interesting because I'd always say what had happened when we went there, there was like a big lobby before you go into the exhibition proper. And they had a tape, uh, some type of area set up and these Tibetan monks were making a big sand mandala to go along with the exhibition and chanting and doing all their stuff. So, you know, we see this on the way in, we go into the exhibition, look around, I have this thing and we come out and there was all this commotion because when we were in there, um, a woman had come in, it sounds like she was having a mental health crisis, had come in and she started yelling about the CAA and she uh, started, um, destroying the sand mandala you know sweeping it all up and everything so they called the cops i guess and got this lady you know into the hospital or whatever but then the um the monks were like well this is you know because everyone's like oh my gosh you're making this huge thing and all this work and the monks are like you know this is just part of life and we're you know going to say prayers for that woman and just do our thing and we're not going to try and fix it or recreate it it's just this is this happened this is part of the whole um you know philosophy or reality of um of life in this world is this you know sometimes things do not go perfectly and it's important to focus on the people so um so the interesting part about that was first of all it was a weird thing but then it so it always kind of stuck in my mind somehow. And then recently I was giving a, a talk through anomaly archives on my near death experience and I was able to put to find that it had actually happened on my birthday. And so I was able to date, you know, the time when I had that recognition. And it's weird too, when you think about it, that it would be actually, this just occurred to me this minute, <laughs> that, that, that I would finally have that recognition after all that meant those years, like seven years on my birthday, as opposed to any other day of the year. So... So, yeah, so then I became interested in Tibetan Buddhism for reasons which should be obvious. And so I ended up, uh, started uh, frequenting, there was a place uh, near where I was living in Berkeley. And so I was, uh, went and was attending services there and stuff. And it was a very small uh, group. And uh, then my, uh, I'd been engaged, my fiance and I broke it off. Well, actually I broke it off. And then, so I ended up moving into a house in this, uh, meditation center and I lived there. I don't know, just like, just for like, I don't know, maybe about three years, but, uh, it was really interesting. Cause this is the first time when I actually got involved in like really any practice or group practice with like other people, as opposed to just being me with these discarnate beings. And that was like 
over 10 years after I'd had my uh, near-death experience. So, um, yeah, so I was up there and I ended up um, uh, doing a lot of uh, sweat lodge with a woman who was also up there and um, uh, learning about my um, big meditation teacher, uh, Leslie Temple Thurston. I sat with her a bunch over a number of years. Um, she'd have these big uh, group meditations. She lives in, or she did at the time, she lived in New Mexico, but she'd come up to the Bay Area about once a month for a few years there and uh, give like kind of whole weekend meditation things, <laughs> which is kind of intense. It sounds terrible to most people, but for me, I just, I don't know, I just... I really enjoy meditating in big groups like that. If you have like a nice group and she, uh, she taught me a lot. I mean, I never had like a, an individual sitting relationship with her or appointments or anything like that, but just, um, and people can still go, uh, her organization is called core light and she has a lot of free resources on the web, you know, guided meditations and, and talks and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, she's really uh, great for learning about uh, control of consciousness and the kind of processes that you go through when you're, you know, confronting the shadow or, or you know, going through these intense, um, ecstatic, uh, expanded states of consciousness. And then, you know, when you come back into more mundane reality, uh, the contrast can be stark. So <laughs> how do you go about handling these type of um, energetic maneuvers? So, yeah, and then, uh, well, uh, I was uh, dating this woman who's a, a trained uh, North American shaman of various traditions, and um, so she did a lot of sweat lodges and, and stuff like that, and so that was interesting, uh, too, to learn a little bit about that, that type of ritual and, and uh, philosophy and, and uh, cosmology. So um, I had a few years there where I was just really kind of like making up for lost time as far as any ritual practices and, and, and studying uh, these various philosophies and, and states of consciousness. Um, so, and it was interesting living up with the uh, Tibetans because we had a lot of, um, a fair amount of uh, different uh, you know, tukuls or, or rinpoches or various lamas uh, coming through for teachings and stuff. And um, I have to say, since my near-death experience, my spiritual uh, focus has it was very much on, I so admired the beings that helped me. Hmm. You could be in such a distressed situation and have another entity that could come in and actually support you. And I thought, you know, really, I would like to be able to, to do that in, you know, any small way that would be possible, but to be able to cultivate, cultivate that ability. And uh, so it really struck me when I was um, at this meditation center, we would have various uh, teachers come through and they're all uh, very adept and you, can have some uh, strange experiences pop up, but um, I noticed that there was this one guy, I've forgotten his name, which is probably a good thing, so I don't say it accidentally, but he came through, and everyone was just sniping at each other, and getting nasty and petty, and just, you know, this kind of BS trying to one-up one each other, right, and then he left, 
but then um, it's not the current one. It's a, His Holiness, the Satyatrism came through, and it was fascinating to me because about a day before he got there, it was just like, ah, this relaxation, and people were looking out for each other, and they were kind and sharing and considerate, and it felt like there was enough time. There was no rush. Just this real kind of beautiful uh, feeling to the entire group. And it lasted until about half day before he was going to be out the door when his attention was on to the next place, right? <laughs> that was, to me, it's, in a way, it sounds like the most boring thing when you have, I don't know, you know, it's like people seeing Bigfoot or uh, Black Triangle UFOs and stuff. It, it sounds like completely boring next to that. However, to me, it was just one of the most profound things that I've ever seen. And I thought it was really uh, instructive, too, about how we can have an effect. And when we are focusing on all this weird stuff, there's a there is a higher pur there can be a higher purpose to it, which is to um, reduce suffering. Right. I was talking with uh, wild trees, who is a biologist and a pure researcher type. Um, we were talking about, he had uh, thought experiments for uh, trapping a, a poltergeist, but um, he put it, he said, you know, it's important to study these phenomena because people suffer with them. And unless we understand them, we can't really help reduce that suffering. And uh, it was really nice to see him uh, state that so plainly. So. Hmm. Something else that uh, I really liked from your blog was uh, where you talk about meaning versus explanation. Uh, well, this is, um, yeah, it's another thing that uh, I think people overlook because it's another example of the multidisciplinary approach. And it's another example, I think, in which um, various magical theories or esoteric philosophies uh, give us a more practical viewpoint than the standard parapsychological one. Because um, I'll, I'll tell a little story here. It's from my friend Sean. And uh, I wrote a blog post about this story that he had told me. His brother is a grave digger. And they had a, um, they buried a man. This is years ago. They buried a man. And of course, they resotted the grave and the grass died. So they sodded it again, and the grass died. They put on more grass, and this is all just like in the space of like a summer and a fall. And then it finally kind of took hold, but not that great, and then the snows came, and then uh, my friend told me this story. Now, the kicker is that this isn't the grave of a man who murdered his family and then killed himself. So it's a classic ghost story, right? you understand it's like the earth itself is just rejecting this guy it's rejecting life you know it's like a classic thing and the thing is that even if uh you know you go and find out oh there was a weird um fungal infection or there was um one of the bereaved family was going in there at night and spraying herbicide on the grave right it doesn't matter what caused it it's still pointing to the same meaning, mm. which is, you know, our revulsion at the actions of this man, their anti-life, right? Um, and so I think people get a little 
mixed up. I mean, even if we uh, find out the propulsion system of a UFO, if we capture one, I mean, it could be great. But th what does that tell us about who are the beings that created this, right? What does it mean for us, right? Hmm. Um, you have the, the technology can be used to express meaning, um, or it could, you know, just be kind of a mechanistic type thing that's just happening because the, the universe is clunking along as it will. But I think as well that a lot of people that have these high strange experiences witness uncanny things. Um, that is the big sticking point for them. I think there's a, lot, a couple of big sticking points. One, one is that lots of times you get popped into these very altered states of consciousness and you can't stabilize it, which creates problems. <laughs> but then the other thing is like, well, what does this mean? You know, people that, that have like a crisis apparition of a dead loved one or an after-death visitation, right? You can, even if you came up, you know, with the mechanism or if you come up with some materialistic uh supposed uh explanation it still it doesn't address the meaning aspect i had a a weird a weird thing <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the thing that my mom always kind of gets kind of like mm. actually she's very sweet but sometimes i think she's a little tired of hearing me saying now here's a weird thing <laughs> so <laughs> recently um a guest of your a previous guest of your podcast ap strange had organized on world contact day which is a uh, while back, um, that we would have kind of a, uh, a few people would have a group meditation where we'd all listen to a calling all occupants of UFOs or interstellar craft, the, that song, and try and meditate on uh, creating contact, right? So that was fun. Kind of synchronized our watches and everything. Um, and people had strange dreams in the group. There was a lot of kind of... Uh, well, me and AP, we had some things where it's kind of like we were kind of living in each other's minds a little bit, you know, exchanging things, uh, DMs and stuff about all this weird stuff. But the big thing for me was the next day when I went outside and um, I was in the front of the house. And what happened was I looked up and I always like to watch this guy. I'm a bird watcher. I love watching the weather here. I like to take pictures of clouds. <laughs> So I love looking at the night sky. So I went and then I looked back at the house and boom, right above the house, there is a, a cloud that looks very much like a feather and in particular a feather that I had found like in the beginning of the year, like a white egret feather. And I was sitting here looking at this because, you know, I've been thinking of trying to get signs in the sky happening. And then the next day you have this great sign in the sky, this great kind of weather feather. Um, and one of my neighbors that I hadn't spoken to in like six months just was riding by on his bike. And he looked at me and he said, UFO, <laughs> which was really funny. I don't know what the last time anyone's asked me if I was looking at a UFO because I know I'm a bird watcher. Um and then the other thing that was interesting to me about that was that I had been uh, actually working with uh, AP as well about um, uh, pre prepping for a show on people that can call up UFOs and uh, things like that. 
um, for example, Ted Owens, but there's a big overlap with weather magic. And so I had been uh, researching and uh, talking back and forth with Josh Allen, who is a Taoist weather magician, who is um, his principal uh, magical object is a fan, a feather fan, right? So I had just been thinking and doing all this stuff about this, you know, uh, weather magic guy who's really into changing the weather right and you look up there's this cloud that looks like a feather oh we're both obsessed with i mean we send each other pictures of feathers <laughs> but the thing was it was real obvious because it was like a cirrus cloud so it has that kind of um a striation in it and a, a plane had flown through it so it had like the contrail for like the quill so it's completely obvious what the mechanism is that created this uh feature in the sky, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it it really looks like something that had been super on my mind and had this extra um, added meaning of it being a feather and the, the weather angle, as well as the kind of signs in the sky angle. Hmm. There's kind of like, they're two, and they're not necessarily um, at cross purposes, but they may be kind of, you know, just kind of two parallel things. Um, you know, it depends. Sometimes you can have something that is, um, that seems like an omen or something and you realize, oh, this is about something, you know, that, that I could take action on. Like that was just kind of like more like a collaborative art project (laughs) (laughs) using weather as our canvas. (laughs) But, um, you know, other times, you know, you'll kind of, um, like if you have, uh, um, let's say a certain uh, medical condition that is associated with a particular color or symbol to you. Uh, I actually did, I never, I, I do this maybe once a decade, but someone came at me recently. I, I had a, a series of um, kind of premonitions or, or I was just noticing this, this pink, hot pink, fuchsia pink color a lot in the run-up to my mom actually ended up in, in the hospital with pulmonary embolisms. She was fine. Um, it was due to a medicine. But, uh, and then it turned out that she, my mom, the whole time she's like, I want you to get this form. I want you to get this form. It's like kind of something that where they won't like intubate you or force feed you that type of porn form is called a pulsed. So I'm like, so finally I get my mom in the hospital, you know, out of the emergency room. She's set up in her room. She's doing good now, blah, 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 blah. And I get this form finally, and I look at it, and it's the same hot pink color that I had been noticing for like a couple of weeks. So for me, it's like that hot pink color is associated with this particular medical condition. And I had uh, someone uh, a while back who was having some health conditions and they said, you know what? I just got this, you know, top and this color. And then this, and it was all about this hot pink color again. I'm just like, you know, can you just keep an extra eye on clots? <laughs> because I had, you know, that color being so associated. So sometimes it, it can have like the meaning, how can I say it'll be actionable or possibly actionable, or you feel like it's giving you like an, a warning or an indication. Other times it's just, I don't know, my own personal viewpoint is just the, the consciousness is using whatever material is available to it that it can to get this message across that wants to express itself. 
Hmm. And the sky, of course, is very interesting because uh, sky expression is facilitated through uh, randomness. And, of course, there's a lot of randomness <laughs> in weather systems. So they're very volatile. Um, so I think that is could be one reason why, you know, pe- things could happen along with the weather. And why one reason why what weather magic works, but of course, also because it's very important, especially I think in our more ancient history, obviously being able to have some influence on the weather could be incredibly helpful. So, right, yeah, yeah, definitely. We're almost out of time here, but I think one thing I want to ask you is what's intriguing you the most right now in terms of power weird phenomena and mysterious happenings. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't know. Partly this is a bad question for me right now because the the last like three or four years I've been um, writing and speaking more. And so I find that it's, I can't keep up. I just, I used to keep up on all this stuff and now I can't. It's kind of like, a, like I had the big inhale and now I'm on the exhale. I can't. But um, I am getting more interested in uh, personally. Um, well, like I was talking about with that feather, it's kind of uh, the angle of um, par- paranormally or sci-facilitated art expression, because I've been writing up a lot of these um, articles on my blog, which I call an esoteric memoir. But what I've been noticing is when I'm writing these up, that I have a very specific kind of aesthetic tone that I want to hit. Um, and that I need to have a certain type of event happen so that I can write it up so that it will kind of have a certain um, uh, dramatic charge to it that will come through clearly and that it will help uh, express some type of uh, idea or principle about uh, my own observations about the way these events happen or questions that I have about what this means for our, um, how we interact with these phenomena and how they are expressions of our consciousness or how consciousness interacts with the material world and other consciousnesses. But I can't just like write it up cold-bloodedly. It's like, or I can't come up with a, uh, imaginary example I have to, <laughs> I have to come up with these stupid synchronicities <laughs> or some weird stuff which I don't know why that is I mean there's a long tradition of for example people that have um, uh, they uh, dream a melody or they dream a poem or um, I had uh, my boyfriend when I was in my, the same one that took me to the uh, exhibition. Um, he would see, he was a painter, he would see his paintings in uh, states of synesthesia or uh, in dreams. And so he would put himself in situations where he would be expecting to have a synesthetic experience as a way to. Um, to generate more paintings that then he, once he would see them in vision, then he would be able to just have that there and then work out how to create it in the manifest world. Hmm. Um, so I'm getting more interested in 
in that line of uh, thought and things where you can have like these these uh, group collaborations that maybe then uh, get some pertinent manifestation to them. Um, I was thinking about uh, Barbara Fisher. Uh, she's one of the hosts of Six Degrees of John Keel podcast, wrote a uh, blog recently about John Keel and about, uh, you know, he did these experiments when he was uh, in the whole Mothman flap, where he noticed that the uh, phenomenon, these high weirdness reports, would reflect back to him kind of what his uh, theories were, or if he'd noticed like odd details, they would come back to him. And so he started experimenting by just uh, kind of seeding things out to certain contactees and then seeing if those details would come back to him. Or then he got to the point where he would just think something. And then he'd get a report that reflected what he had thought. And when, um, you know, I've read Mothman many times, but when she put it that starkly in that blog post, I realized that this is the same method that I used to, to generate synchronicities. Hmm. And I have the same feel, because a lot of people, too, will talk about um, Keel. I'm like, well, uh, because you can't trust everything that he says. But he's not making that type of an argument. He's not, I mean, it seems like a Josh Kutchwin and a Timothy Renner in their work on Bigfoot, they're making a, a logical uh, argument. They're just accumulating all this data and showing you uh, through all these examples that it leads to a certain conclusion, which is that there's a, a huge pair of uh, psychological aspect to Bigfoot sightings, right? Keel is coming at it from a different angle. In my opinion, is that he wants to give you a good taste, a good dose of what it's like to be thrown into Chapel Perilous with this stuff <laughs> so that you have some empathy for the witnesses, so that you can recognize when it might be happening to you. He wants to point out the dangers, and he wants to give you um, some tips about uh, and tools and a knowing of how you can come through it without completely going batshit with being able to keep your feet somewhat on the ground, giving you a feel for how tricky and horrible this is, which is not the same as just writing down like a timeline of everything that happened. Right. He's got to sell it to you artistically. He's got to create a world and lead you through it, but let you think, that you're finding your way through it yourself. And I find that I really, um, for me, that is more my own orientation when it comes to writing a piece on the blog, because I want to give, it's more, what would it be like if this happened to you? Now, of course, I, I, I try and have like documentation and everything to help kind of break the fourth wall a little bit for people. So they realize this. If you want, you can you can go there and say, yeah, this actually happened because it did. I'm not asking you to to trust me or to to buy in. But if you want to go that extra step, but I always try and uh, keep a certain tone. And there's a subtle aspect to this too of uh, supporting people in that knowledge. Where like you can say, okay, this completely freaky, weird, uncanny thing happened, but we're still here. And we still have it together enough that we can do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. But for me, that 
is what I'm interested in. I mean, something like Hellier, I think, is um, more along those lines of uh, it's kind of art, but it, you you have to have this weird stuff happen so that you can go forward. Penny Royal, that podcast is fascinating, and I love the the emphasis on the uh, comet coming in there because I love comets more than anything. I love all that sky stuff. And it's uh, very evocative, and I love how the way he uh, he he has a, a, a great uh, melding of of artistic expression, um, and then these kind of cold facts, and then people's particular narratives that are arising out of this whole kind of cultural, um, geological, historical milieu. Yeah, that is compelling and it's fascinating. So I don't know if that's a answer or not no i, I think that's a, a really good answer I, I agree with you about the the penny roll podcast i think that's a really interesting dive down a rabbit hole it's a really great exploration of of that kind of thing happening where you you, you pull at the thread of a of a mystery and it just keeps going and going and off in different directions and and there's these connections that you were never anticipating but they tend to pop up and i think that happens a lot when you investigate this kind of stuff there's an interconnectedness there i think yeah i it's interesting when you have uh, what i what i think of as a, a good strong sink uh lots of times you'll find out or, or like a, a strong uh premonitory dream that type of thing you'll find that like you say when you start pulling the threads there's more to it right um or, you know, you present it uh, to other people, which I find can be very helpful because they'll usually see stuff that you don't. And they're like, oh, yeah, look at this. And they'll find that like a, a date that you hadn't even noticed is significant or, or that type of thing or some other type of symbol. So it's fun. But, yeah, I really I would recommend anyone to listen to Penny Royal. It's great. Um, oh, and I wanted to mention um, before we wrap up that uh, I had some uh, good conversations about some of this material with someone beforehand, and it was very helpful for me. His name is si Simon Hess Hesse oh gee whiz, I wrote it down, Johansson and Hesselager, I think. Simon Hesselager Johansson, he's on Facebook. And uh, yeah, we had some uh, conversations about a lot of this uh, same stuff um, about the, the imaginal versus the real and, and the narrative and stuff. And it was very helpful for me uh, before our conversation to kind of sort some of my own ideas out. So I wanted to thank him. So. Yeah, definitely. Thank you as well from, from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephanie, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just thank you. If people want to find out more about you and your wonderful blog, how best do they do that? Uh, it's called Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box, and it's just stephaniequick.home.blog. And if you go to the contact page, it has links to like my uh, email and uh, Twitter account too. So if you want. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay. As someone who will more often consult a book rather than get my boots on the ground when it comes to expanding my knowledge of all things weird, I really admire how Stephanie has been able to give context to some of her own very personal and unusual experiences 
and not get too bogged down in meaning or explanation, but see those two concepts as not having to be in conflict. I heartily recommend checking out her blog, which is packed full of interesting stories, theories and insights. That's all for now. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. There is a link for that in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Some Other Sphere will return soon with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and as always, thank you very much for listening.